Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Arts Chat. I'm your host today, John Robinette. Uh, our colleagues are away doing other uh, actual work. Me as a freelancer, I'm a little bit more free to do these things. So today, our episode is called Dragon Psychology 102. Experts react to revisionist history podcast, Dragon Psychology 101. Okay, so deaccessioning is not new, but it has reached new levels of controversy in the current state of economic, har- economic hardship facing our institutions at the moment. In the first episode of season five of the podcast Revisionist History, titled Dragon Psychology 101, Malcolm Gladwell asks the question, why not just sell something to pay the bills? And proposes that museums are just hoarding if they refuse to sell amidst trying circumstances that result in mass layoffs and financial hardship. And of course, these are the situations that face most of our institutions now. ArxChat has solicited the help of two experts to react to the episode and directly address this challenging question. Robin Cooper, the manager of curatorial affairs at the Indianapolis Museum of Art and Newfields, joins to represent the curatorial and cultural interests at play. And also Nicholas O'Donnell, partner at the law firm Sullivan and Worcester in Boston, who argued on behalf of the museum membership in the now landmark Berkshire Museum deaccession case. Uh, and he will provide the legal insight to the discussion. So with that, let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to hit play. Starting today, if you don't live in New York State, you're going to have to pay a mandatory entrance fee to visit the Metropolitan Museum. Eyewitness News, ABC7 New York, March 1st, 2018. The new policy was announced in January, but it took effect today. Adults who do not have ID proving that they live right here in New York As have someone to pay $25. Who lives in New York, this was Seniors a deal. will pay $17. If I had to pinpoint the beginning of my obsession with art museums, It would be the moment the Metropolitan Museum, one of the greatest museums in the world, decided to impose entrance fees. It was a difficult time for the institution. They had a $40 million deficit. They got rid of 90 employees. Exhibitions were canceled. There was a shakeup in the leadership. Up and down the Upper East Side of Manhattan, there was hand-wringing and a great gnashing of teeth. I remember one New York Times headline from that time. Is the Met Museum a great institution in decline? That was followed by one expression of anguish after another, including this from the former chairman of the Met's drawings and print department. To have inherited a museum as strong as the Met was 10 years ago with a great curatorial staff and to have it be what it is today is unimaginable. Well, exactly. Because... For the life of me, I couldn't imagine how it was the Met was crying poverty. I mean, I they have one of the largest and most valuable art collections in the world. I think that's interesting because 10 years ago was right after a major recession, so I'd be surprised if financially they really were objects. that great. What's all that art worth? I don't know, $100 billion? More? The Met might be the richest nonprofit institution in human history. All they would have to do is pick a couple things off the shelf and they'd never see a deficit again. This is like Jeff Bezos firing the gardener because he's out of cash. Just go to the ATM, Jeff. But they couldn't do it. They would rather fire people and make a family of four cough (laughs) up to $100 at the gate than even think of parting with a single one of their possessions. Why? Can we pause it real quick? 
there, John. Yeah, that was so much information. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if Nick has a lot of feedback there, but the the way Malcolm introduces this podcast is uh, really polarizing because it's definitely posing the Met as this home for rich people, whereas a family of four wouldn't be able to afford to go. And um, one of the major problems there is that while the Met might have certainly is a very wealthy institution, even if they are in debt and certainly wealthy in terms of objects. Uh, as a nonprofit, they have a mission to collect these objects and to present them to the public. And I, Malcolm never brings that up. He, he makes right. it kind of a them versus us sort of right off the bat, which um, doesn't leave a very good taste in my mouth as someone that works for a nonprofit and understands that you know, your mission is to the, the family of four that wants to come. And uh, it's never a, a reason for imposing a admission fee, which my institution also has, isn't to turn people away, it's to ensure that you can continue to welcome them. Right. Well, and I feel like this, uh, you know, he's, he's sort of one, he's missing the one critical element, which is um, that we don't sell them because of the cultural mission. And uh, we specifically do not want to see the objects in a museum as assets to be sold. They, we don't want to see them. And we've made this sort of societal choice in order to, um, to see them as part of the culture and not as, not as money um, or not as something to be monetized. So um, anything to add to that, Nick? No, I just think it, it starts from a very simplistic view of, as you said, the mission of a museum and the complexity of executing that mission. And, the, and there is no more complex picture than a place like the Met or, or you know, one of the very small handful of museums around the world of that size and, and um, scope. Um, you know, it's sort of like complaining about Amtrak being cost neutral, right? It sort of misses the point of the larger public mission that the institution is serving. And it, it, there are a lot of fair questions that he raises and a lot of fair questions that, that, that the accessioning conversation raises. I just don't think he's raised any of them yet. Right. Well, and, and, but I mean, you know, to be fair, you know, um, you know, we, museums are closing now. I mean, the Met, you know, they claimed at the beginning of the pandemic that they were going to lose a hundred million dollars. Um, and, you know, obviously hundreds, if not thousands of museum employees all over the place have been let go during the pandemic mm -hmm. as a result. So, um, you know, it's, it's a fair question, obviously, you know, if you're a private collector foundation, I, I do know foundations that do this, um, and you know, it's how they pay the bills. So, um, it's a different mission of course, but I think, um, you know, there are people that would argue that it's all on the table. I, I think the other thing that this using the Met as the conversation piece, um, confuses is uh, the Met is a museum with an enormous endowment, which is not true of most museums, but it is yep. true there. And immediately launching into, well, why don't we sell the art, skips past the question of what's the endowment for? And I'm not yep. suggesting the answer is to liquidate the endowment either, but uh, it is a much less culturally significant set of assets because it's money. Yep. Um, and, you know, this is something I think that, that museums and universities are confronting this year as they did 10, 12 years ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you have a rainy day fund, but no matter how hard it rains, you never tap into the rainy day fund, you look elsewhere. Well, then what's the rainy day fund for? Right. And, and, and AAM, for example, is very clear about, you know, despite economic hardship, you're not supposed to sell 
I mean, this is this is a as as much as you know the the what you're using the funds for is debated. They're very clear about that much. So, all right, well let's uh, let's keep going here. And it is for puzzles like this that we have revisionist history. My name is Malcolm Gladwell. You're listening to my podcast about things overlooked and misunderstood. This is our fifth season, five years of digression, high dudgeon, needless provocation, and my absolute favorite, Grand Unified Theories. In this season of Revisionist History, I want to explore our emotional attachment to objects and rituals and tradition and the way in which those attachments betray us. And in this first episode, I would like to make sense of the strange relationship of the art world to art. I wonder. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I think, uh, you know, I mean, many people are wondering about the, the central question about, you know, selling to pay the bills. And I mean, there are literally museums closing During right now. During his 31-year tenure so as it's, director uh, of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Philippe de Montebello, the Met's eighth and longest-serving director, guided the acquisition of more than 84,000 works of art. I found this in a video series called Great Museums, an episode from 2010, An Acquiring Mind. Lots of wide-angle shots of marble-floored galleries and gilt-frame paintings. NPR's Susan Stamberg narrates over what sounds like an orchestra right there on the set. Born in France, educated at Harvard, in 1963, DeMontebello brought a background in European painting. The film runs for an hour. It's about the most famous director of the Met, Philippe de Montebello, descendant of a noble French family. In particular, it's about how much stuff Philippe de Montebello bought during his 31-year tenure as head of the Met. Tapestries, African sculptures, a fabulous Vermeer, an evening gown that's to die for. He even bought things he didn't want to buy. Philippe has been an incredible director for supporting the acquisitions of objects of great Paving the way for the hoarding. The it goes on Name. and on about I've actually the seen this video before. We watched it wonder, in my curatorial uh, meeting a few years Wait, ago, and it goes into their acquisition process and uh, Today, it shows how they vote as a group to acquire, which is a really interesting idea world that um, are contained in brings the a lot of unity between um, different departments Apparently, that might not always I was wrong in the numbers. Not yeah. 1.5 million so objects, you, you would call it a 2 million objects. Down process. Absolutely. I think it's yeah. fantastic that the Maybe curators can pitch example. between each other um, the reason the for acquiring a gift or a, a purchase held in um, July of 1991 so that everyone's aware of the direction the, the collecting better known as the here is going. Um, right. The we, and it's something the that we've instituted actually in the field and it's very collaborative. And this was one of the really great working environment sessions. Yeah. I mean, I think it is interesting to share with the broader American interviewed in this and I don't know if it's because they declined, but to the accounting universe. The venue was the FASB's Norwalk, Connecticut headquarters. The subject is usual accounting for contributions received and contributions made and capitalization of historical treasures and similar assets. Again, he sort of starts the premise that the Med and other institutions have this seamless acquisition to watch in the overflow. Though they're not doing, as you said, I've read a transcript of consideration, particularly not just from And I would like to direct your attention to a particular exchange. It was between the I, then I, it was interesting of the to me that he didn't go into this because 
and a man yeah, named as C. the lawyer in this Douglas we talked about Dillon. Um, these things are property, of Dillon course, and when you're doing accounting for Patrician institution, um, they do own these things, Dillon and so how you treat them matters, uh, and they, and they, and you know, in fairness, the museums receive an extraordinary benefit in not having to list them on their balance sheet, um, because that would be practically difficult, it would create uh, income, and business issues, um, so, well, yeah, and then also then you, you, you enter into a question about what is the value because obviously these things fluctuate pretty dramatically, but then more importantly, the moment you put a value on something, it equates it with money as if it's something that can just be liquidated. So, um, and that's, again, the point of not <laughs> disclosing that. But it is tricky because there is an actual market for art. So it's not only a non-monetary item that museums hold, it is a huge monetary item that people also hold. So it has like two different types of value. And I, I really couldn't, well, I couldn't think of another uh, object or and the financial whether it's oranges or butter or gold that has a similar type of market a real duality there right Beresford had made it plain that he it would solve the problem is, is the other thing it so would if you could just liquidate something that was in demand and you know, raise funds immediately it solves the problem which is why it seems so tantalizing like it's low-hanging fruit right I mean it's C Douglas freaking Dylan he does a little preamble carefully explains how outraged the Met is at the intrusion of accountants into their business, launches into a vivid description of the extraordinary size of the Met's collection, and then, and this is maybe my favorite part of the entire 947-page transcript, Dylan says, quote, We have a new curator of Islamic art, been with us for a couple years now. We have certainly the greatest collection of Islamic rugs in the Western Hemisphere, one of the two or three in the world. He has never been able to even see that collection because so much of it is in storage and is so difficult to get out, so costly and time-consuming that he knows by the records what they are, but he hasn't been able to look at them. C. Douglas Dillon is speaking to an audience of accountants. Accountants are people who like to count things. More than that, they are people who believe as a matter of deep professional principle that everything can be counted. And they have proposed that the art world agree to start counting things like everyone else. And in response, this pillar of the American establishment shows up in suburban Connecticut and says, we can't count our things. There's just too many of them. They're all buried somewhere in storage. To give you an example, the guy responsible for Islamic I resent that. Maybe the greatest <laughs> well, Islamic rug collection in the saying, world, mind you, yeah. has never even seen our Islamic rug is setting a point that it creates being say, seen in public this is with the, art world loses the extent of the museum's mission, which I think yeah. is one of the fundamental flaws of this podcast, right? Mm -hmm. So I call repositories of cultural property. the FASB, who organized that hearing. All those or studies, scholarships, and those rugs he's talking about just retired. Uh, uh, may not be seen as a unit public ever, but they right. may yes. be and scholars I'm of very, that. I'm very impressed. Honor of Basio no returned to his old offices important. at FASB headquarters. Right, and, and, and it's also, it's not so thinking about the, the mission of the institution in 100 years, 500 years, 1,000 years. 
um, the, uh, they may not play a role today or tomorrow, museum. but down the road and I want to in terms of scholarship and, and education, as you say. Uh, I, was just, I was just wondering if they could be Googled up here as well. Yeah, maybe we can He's on his computer, I'm on mine. We're downloading the Metropolitan Museum of Arts 2019 annual report and locating the crucial part, the statements of financial position, beginning on page 44. I have cash, receivable for investments sold, retail inventories, these are all straightforward, accounts receivable, straightforward, contributions receivable. And That's they, the pledges. Financial statements for almost any organization look pretty much the same. You start by listing your assets, everything of value. Then you list your liabilities, loans, mortgages, pension obligations. Then you balance them. That's why it's called a balance sheet. Basio and I are going down the list of the Met's assets. Then there's investments, which I'm assuming is the endowment. 3.7. Could be endowment or it could be uh, just investments in total. They may not yeah. all be part of the endowment. Then I have fixed assets, 393 million. And then I have collections and I have nothing. It's supposed to be a precise accounting of everything the Met has of value. The amount the museum made last year from selling stocks. The amount of cash it has on hand, its endowment. The amount it's owed from various creditors. The amount it got in gifts the other, and donations. The other thing that's not addressed Even in the here value is of the inventory that endowments in can't all shop. be liquidated, Everything. period. Like, and they so a lot of that all stuff up, is, is And they come up, up with in, a number, total um, assets. How the money was given and the restrictions the next there to the line item that lie on it. So um, that is I would have liked to have seen a little bit of information of about that. Rare and precious information. Yeah, about I thought this was a huge simplification of, as he calls it, the balance sheet. For example, if you're carrying an object or a collection of 50,000 objects, technically, they're all worth the exact same amount of money. You're putting just as much okay. money toward a broken chair to keep it in storage as you are for your priceless Vermeer. So you can't say the Vermeer is worth $50 million and your chair is worth five. Um, it's still your cost of collecting, um, which is figuring out how much it takes annually to care for each individual object, should be flat across the board. Right. This is a multi-billion dollar organization with yes. billions and billions of <laughs> dollars in art and it's none of it is listed on their in their financial statement this seems i don't even, i was i don't even understand how that started well, that was your reaction is similar to the reaction that some of our board members had on top of that it turns out that the met would rather charge admission cut exhibitions and get rid of 90 people than sell anything even though they have so many things like Islamic rugs, that the guy running the Islamic rug collection hasn't even seen any of his Islamic rugs because they're all in storage somewhere. In fact, most of the Mets collection is in storage. Huge well, I think that, you know, what we've seen as a result of this pandemic and maybe what's really behind the question here is that museums perhaps do need other FBA revenue says, streams. Um, why don't you, tell us, you know, five minutes like after the lockdown here in New York, you know, your stuff is worth most of the museums... And many of the you know supporting vendors laid off huge amount, amounts of people, and you know they clearly couldn't afford to pay to Connecticut to say for even a few months in order to stay open. And that's just a level of instability that you know I don't think I would have expected. this is unlike a place like the Met, who has very public financial issues and has had for a long time, as this been pointed out here. Financial reports. And they don't. 
I this think Michael the O'Hare, pandemic really brought into light the problems that uh, large anyone, anyone art institutions the way should have encountered or should have addressed a very long time ago. Um, staffs can be very, very large, um, even have very expensive exhibitions that don't have any income. Um, I think this was kind of a reckoning that, that I don't want to say nonprofits as a whole, but museums had coming and the pandemic just brought us all to the same point at the same time. Right. And yep. then that's the last we hear about it in the financial records. It's quite, uh, it's quite bizarre. For the longest time, I would bore everyone I met with how strange I found all this. Until one day, I was in Holland on my book tour in Leiden, out with a bunch of people in a bar. And I told the group the story of the epic showdown between Dennis Beersford and C. Douglas Dillon. And this one guy, a philosopher, said, oh, it's like smog. Smog, the dragon from The Hobbit, who sits on a mountain of treasure. Smog doesn't want to use his gold. He doesn't wear it out to dragon social events. He does not list his holdings on his annual dragon financial statement. He just wants to hoard it. And I'm like, oh my God, smog. Yes, that explains everything. There's an old dragon and a great like Thomas Friedman. Also say, it, particularly if you're an accredited museum, it is definitely not hoarding. Because as you can say, John, as a registrar, there's a lot of care that's going into that collection. And I think hoarding makes it sound like it's just these like random piles of things as opposed to the neat painting racks you have as your background. Yeah, completely. That's what happens when a treasure for too long. I think what bothers Gladwell, as I understand, is the principle of never. Under his belly, right? The principle that you can never open the door at all. His lair. And it's a, it's a confounding question. Um, why never? And the fact is, the answer isn't never, either in practice or in principle, really. Um, and those principles have proven very difficult to draw. The and they have not been applied. You know the red wax tipped bottle, but there's more um, on the surface of Maker's Mark. And the, the revised guidelines of the AMP with this year Maker's are probably equally applied. I think they're probably going to end up undermining the original guidelines. Yeah. You know, you open the door a crack and people are sort of like, well, what were we doing that, that way for before again? And I don't want to do it that way anymore. Right. Um, and, you know, to get right into it, you know, my case, I think, certainly showed the limits of the power of public opprobrium, right? The AMD didn't waste any time saying you can't do this. We're going to sanction you everything else. The museum said, OK, do your worst. Yeah. Um, and never, never hesitated in, in brushing off that criticism. Right. And, and you know, Mark Gold's point um, from the other side, you know, he was like the sanctions kind of didn't affect the museum at all um so uh, yeah i mean and, and i don't know i mean i you know yeah. i can't comment i, I can't wouldn't comment on that in terms of what the after effect is on other uh interrelations and you know I, I know from personal experience before i was a lawyer how important those relationships are and loans and and reciprocal uh things of all sorts um make it harder if, you, if you're not getting that from other museums but it right. doesn't doesn't mean you cease to exist either. Right. 
But also like to, to, to your point about, you know, what, what he's also getting at is, um, you know, any institution you see so little at a time, um, mm -hmm. there's very little that's actually of the, of the collection that is actually available to see at any one time. And there's a sense that everything else is lacking in value. And if it lacks in value, then why not get rid of it? And that's a process of deaccessioning that happens all the time and that reexamination. Um, and certainly some of the major institutions that have done it recently have done so with the mission of uh, creating awareness towards, you know, say underrepresented, whether, um, you know, populations that that have worked that have not been represented in the canon um and which is why it's interesting that baltimore for example decided to stop you know and with the, because they had you know other i guess what is a warhol that they wanted to sell ironically um so well i think they took me upstairs yeah to the art i think part of the problem is just off the staircase a lot of people agree that the idea of museums selling things back into the private market where they won't be seen again is, is of um, at the same time, uh, you know, I think what others would say correctly is the difference in many instances because if museums sell work of art number one and use the proceeds to buy work of art number two, there's nothing to protect work of art number one from st uh, to stay in the public eye. Um, you know, and 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 it, and I think these things, you know, Robin, you may have some interesting experience on this. They do end up, unfortunately, being a rich man, poor man sort of thing in the execution, right? So the, the summer that the Berkshire Museum announced its intention to sell its paintings, MoMA announced it was selling like two hundred fifty million dollars worth of photographs or something, right? And they were doing it in accordance with the AMD guidelines. Mm -hmm. And so I think the obvious question I posed this in an article I wrote that summer before I got involved in the case is, what's the difference? Why is the you know the the, the photographs? Um, probably even more so, we're going to vanish and never be seen again. Um, and that lack of a limiting principle, I think, bothers a lot of people too. And and, and there isn't a clear answer for it. I think what it comes down to, speaking as a lawyer, is what's the what's the mission of the museum, right? Mark's point, which he I think says eloquently, is the, the mission of the museum's trustees to ensure the survival of the institution. I'm I don't view it quite the same way. I think the trustee's obligation is to ensure the mission of the institution. And I don't think that the right way to do that is to keep the building open at all costs, you know, taking it to its extremes. You know, an empty building with open doors is of no value to anybody, even if it's still the Museum of Art X. Um, and the world can't support all museums as originally conceived, but the world can support, I think, a lot of the missions of those as originally conceived. And I think for individual institutions that's in, when, that do deaccession, um, to use your, your MoMA example, um, they're a museum of modern art. I mean, modern art's been created in the 30 minutes we've been talking. So that is a really evolving um, area in which they are tasked as an institution to continue collecting. Um, is 1945 modern anymore? That was a long time ago at this point. Um, we're getting close to 100 years. So um, is that when at one point will we be looking back at Dolly and saying he's an old master? So depending on your institution really depends on how your collection should be living. And I, I do view collections as living and I think deaccessioning is part of the life cycle of institutions, particularly um, if it, the 
collection is there to support your mission right. and not the other way around. And the collection needs to be reflective of, of that mission. And institutions have missions that change and that's voted upon by the board. And maybe that means that you're going to deaccession so that the collection is more reflective of, of the strategic plan, your collecting plan, all these plans and policies that hopefully your institution has in place when you do decide to deaccession because they all kind of have to support each other. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and even as a hypothetical, um, you know, what if a museum just existed only as a repository um, and it never actually had exhibitions? It was just storage. Um, and so the idea being that um, the value comes to be made. 100% from preservation and not from presentation. Um, and then it, does that shift public perspective? I mean, if you just establish that as, as your mission, then 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 you're 100% hoarding, right? <laughs> you know? Um, but, uh, but then it's also done so for the public good. And um, But the public good is debatable, right? <laughs> well, and I think one of the things that's interesting, and, and I think one thing that Baltimore deserves credit for is they were very candid about what they were doing and why they were doing it. They didn't pretend, right. oh, we're not really selling it for this or that. And, and they weren't, you know, this came up in the context of the revised guidelines, but they weren't selling it by claiming uh, financial hardship. John continued yeah. digging. We are redirecting our purpose in some extent. movie scrapboard. Right. Um, and we've done that similarly at new fields um, we haven't monetized the collection but what we have is created a new collecting plan we've figured out as a curatorial department and as an interpretation department how we would like to reimagine the galleries and we've also come up with the cost of collecting how much does it cost to care for each individual object which as i said earlier is the same amount whether it's the broken chair or well we don't have a vermeer but we'll say the rembrandt <laughs> um that's the same number and I think then you can use a cost of collecting to figure out financially how you as an institution can be existing 30 years from now and 100 years from now, no matter what your mission might be and should it be changing, you know, you can only keep the doors up depending on finances, not depending on whether you have that Rembrandt or broken chair. So I think there's a financial piece here that Gladwell doesn't address in the podcast. And I think a lot of us that are art historians or collection specialists are maybe a little too altruistic about because we love art and we love our collections, but they don't, they cease to exist if you can't keep your finances above four. Right. In fact, I just word searched. We just the we were talking over the section about uh, Andy Warhol and the Warhol Museum and how he um, how they preserve all of the the things that he collected, all the tchotchkes and things that he bought at the market. So. I don't think we missed anything. I mean, it was more to support his case about the hoarding and, um, you know, seeming lack of curation of the things that he collected. Um, so now they're discussing um, how he acquired things. knew Andy Warhol and the flea market where he hung out. It was a protein flea market. <laughs> it kept growing, but again, you know, this is treating antithetical to the way museums operate. You know, obviously, it's expanded. the you know, even and if you've never seen you know all of the Islamic scene. rugs in your collection, like, I they weren't acquired there. haphazardly. It was just a. A place that you what went, this segment, really the flea market, made me think of was my time when I was at the Smithsonian American History, and um, there was a collection of Katrina objects that had come in, and the curator had gone to New Orleans and collected soggy toys or signs that you know people had been putting on their roofs to to direct help to come to them, and. Um, 
I don't mean to equate that to a flea market because it was obviously a very horrific event. Um, but would Malcolm be as cavalier to say to the Smithsonian Museum of American History to say, hey, I think you should deaccession these muddy, there was a muddy Playmobil castle that I remember in storage near where I worked. Would he say that to the curator of that collection that obviously has a much more emotional and impactful like human history behind it as opposed to saying, hey, deaccession your Turkish rugs. Um, I, it made me really reflect on how I think fine art is put under a really different lens um, in terms of monetization than collections that, um, I don't want to say are based on ephemera, but are material history and speak to particularly our American history. Yeah. Well, and all of this, you know, sort of starts from the from the question, which itself has the assumption of a certain level of activity, exhibitions, and everything else, right? And I've worked at a very financially uh, stable museum. I've been a trustee at a museum that was hand to mouth every ten minutes. And to some extent, like anything else, after his you know, you got to balance the checkbook. You got to know what you can and can't do. And if you assume that you have to keep doing major blockbuster exhibitions or large things of a certain scale, and then the question is how you pay for it, well, then you're going to make the question of whether you can sell the art. Um, if you are content to be publicly available, find a way to pay the electric bill, and even at that, you're not necessarily going to. I think we're also arriving at the, the same conclusion that monetizing the collection actually uh, involves selling it, and that doesn't actually have to be the case. You know, it, you know, of course, there's admission fees for special exhibitions. That does happen, but, I mean, you know, there's other ways. I mean, because if you do think of it purely as an asset, and if a museum is purely a business, that is, like, one of the best things. So you can... You know, why not increase your loan fees, for example? I mean, there, this is, we, we could make it more available is, is my point. Yeah. I mean, there's other ways to, to look at monetization of the collection. Finding ways to have more earned revenue. And that could be through having a winter light show, which is something that we do at Newfields. And um, which we've definitely come under, under, under fire for, for Disneyfying. Disney-fying um, the campus, but um, that then supports our acquisitions and our public programs and our ability to participate in loans and ask for loans. And it, it is definitely a stool that requires a whole lot of different legs to hold it up. And we don't work in ivory towers. And the fact that we still poo-poo museums for finding creative ways to make money is, uh, I find really infuriating. <laughs> because when museums say they don't need to make money is when they find problems. <laughs> well, what that light show did was take deaccessioning off the table. I mean, it, I mean, maybe it's not directly correlated, but I mean, it, it made it less of an issue. So. I even have the box after he died uh, at the hospital of his clothing and his final effects that were left at the hospital. We have that box preserved as it was picked up from the hospital. So that actually had, sounds very important um, to me. Andy Warhol's final belongings for that final visit. The backpack exactly how it was packed, so it has like person. all of his glasses of, and the business the card event. for his doctor in the front pocket. Different than the significance no, of the work of the I don't need to pick on the Warhol Museum, Museum, but this is what all art museums do. During his tenure running the Met, 
And if you go to the Warhol Museum, if you have a museum dedicated to one person and they don't have that stuff, Leave alone this idea that that's not a any different from the mountain of detritus in cardboard boxes. It's really facile, right? I mean, because I think we were sort of struggling before to think of other examples. Well, what about a library, right? Like the value of a library is is not proportional mathematically. You have the number of books or divided by three or four or whatever else. The, the value is in the, ex the existence of it as a resource, right? Nobody says, well, there's this book that nobody's ever taken out. So why do we even have that? Because somebody might want to read it someday. That's the point. That's yeah, a great exactly. example, because that's an institution that continues to collect, too. So right, while right. you're not parting with books that aren't checked out, you're also not going to say, you know, it's been a tough year. I'm not going to acquire anything published in 2020. Yeah. Well, it also works to, to, to my hypothetical example, too, because, yeah, again, you know, a, you, you know, selling books doesn't necessarily make you money unless it's a, you know, it's a rare book. But then also, you know, the value is 100% in in the hoard, if you will. So, whether you're doing a million or so, I mean, I think, I mean, it's clear that, you know, we, we all are sort of on the same page about, um, you know, the podcast seems to be missing the point of, um, of institutions collecting cultural assets as opposed to monetary assets um but you know i i mean we we've still been able to sort of point out how it's still a complicated issue because um you know if it were a private collector that needed to fund some stuff they might just call the collection and and sell it and uh you know it also come calls into question you know who determines what the value I mean, as a curator, Robin, I mean, this actually points to you, like you're actively deciding what creates value or what is worth preserving. Let me put it that way. Um, and so therefore <laughs> we have to, we have to decide, um, what, 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 what do we, what do we, what's worth preserving? What's worth collecting? You're right. I don't, I don't actually really like the word preserving because that makes it sound like it is staying in storage and not right. going to be, it sounds like you're like, canning vegetables and hiding away in your basement for a bad day. I think of it as being more selective in terms of what you're going to collect, first of all, um, in terms of your financial ability to continue to support the objects that you're bringing in. Um, and when you are able to put a number to how much each individual object counts, it does make you a little more selective. Um, but also ensuring that your collecting plan has a direction for what not only do you want to continue to collect, but the stories that you'd like to continue to tell or retell in the gallery in a new way. And we've undergone a complete assessment of what was a 50,000 piece collection. And we've deaccessioned close to 7,000 objects since 2015 because they don't fit within that collecting plan and in the direction in which we would like the institution to go. Um, and that is everyone's decision. That's every curator that has ranked their collection. It is the art committee's decision and the director's decision and the board of trustees decision. It's not one person saying, hey, I'm the director of the museum and I'd really like to do X, Y, Z. These five pieces are going to go. Um, it's a much more critical assessment of the long range goals of the museum. Yeah. Right. Century paintings, sculptures, busts, antiques, lamps, jewelry, and more. 
end quote. Right, and that's a very good point, right? Because he's he's Bello as sort of the narrative driving point, which is just sort of like the great man theory of history. Like, okay, there are hundreds of other people involved here um, who are informing and in fact making these decisions. Right. And that's not to say that there aren't and this is where I think deaccessions are tricky and um, and Malcolm doesn't make this point either, maybe because he has an hour, maybe because he doesn't work in a museum. But um, while there are a lot of headlines about poor deaccession decisions, the people that typically don't have headlines are the ones that do make good deaccession decisions or continually see deaccession. I know we were in the New York Times, but I know plenty of other museums that also have active deaccession programs. And um, very often it's not to make $20 million at Christie's. Right. Um, right. So they're not in the headlines. They're getting rid of that $5 chair in storage that costs just as much to take care of as the room here. So um, no one's gonna slap someone's hand for wanting to um, get those objects out the door. But that's a really critical part of collections care, um, tracking the objects, um, doing your inventory. And um, when you do have the processes that are really up to date, whether it's your policies, procedures, or inventories, you can make the decisions about deaccessioning that are really above board. But I couldn't stress enough how important it is to have an art committee of a board of trustees or collections committee, as most institutions call it, that are entirely aware of the direction the museum is going in, that are super engaged in the meetings and are always appraised about what's coming in and what's going out. Um, it is wholly reliant um, on the knowledge that, of the people that you do select to have on your board. Um, I think a lot of boards get into trouble when they are, um, especially art museums can be very fun boards to be on and the art committee is always the you know golden ticket. Uh, no one wants to really be on the finance committee. <laughs> Everyone wants to be on the art committee. And um, it isn't something that should be given out as a prize for a donor that's giving you a lot of money. It should be for someone that will help you steer your institution. Well, yeah, and because, you know, selling things is only one way of deaccessioning, you know, it could be repatriation, which mm -hmm. is, a, a, which is, I'm, you know, I'm sure, Nick, you've dealt with that. But it's like, uh, I mean, that, that's where you really need the expertise. And that's where you really need the knowledge um, coming from your, your board, because those decisions are massive, and they don't happen in a vacuum. So, so look, board composition is so important, because you do need a mixture, right? You need a mixture of people who can supply resources. There's just no getting around that. Um, but you also need a mixture of people who, you know, have a passion for the mission and understand the details and want to do the work, uh, you know, particularly in something like an acquisition committee or, uh, you know, and or making decision decisions. Who can, who can, um, who can digest and use the details. <clears throat> Well, also like these, you know, I mean, my question is, you know, should, should these, um, these policies that say AAM or AAMD design be more ambiguous just because, um, just to allow for the variation in the missions of each, each institution? Um, I mean, we, and I mean, is it enough to have sort of an unwritten rule that, you know, we, we operate like this where we don't sell collections in order to pay the bills. Um, but, you know, what if the the mission of your institution allows for that? I mean, maybe you're just not getting accredited or maybe you're not a part of AAMD, but um, I don't know. 
I don't know either. And, and, you know, look, one of the ironies, of course, is that very few museums are members. Very few museums directors are members of the AMD. It's like 260 something. Yeah. It's, um, which, you know, it, it is what it is. But, um, and if you look at, the, you know, the New York rules uh, from the Board of Regents, which is the only state that has any actual legal um, teeth to this, it is a bit more flexible in terms of an object that's no longer consistent with the mission of your collection. It doesn't doesn't compel a one-to-one -one use of the dollars. Um, it essentially says if, if this object, you know, if you're the Andy Warhol Museum and you have, you know, a photograph of me for some reason, you can deaccession it because that's not the mission of your institution. Um, and that does give some flexibility to use the Baltimore example. The trustees who ultimately have the authority to say what the mission of the institution is say we're changing the mission or we're revising it um we do that so that's certainly a little more flexible than the AMD uh, rule right. which is important because of you know the, the moral suasion of the AMD rules and the AM rules is important everywhere but new york is particularly important because of the center of gravity and so those two more laws are, are and and i we're only talking about art because of the the financial side and also the 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 nature of the the podcast we're listening to but these regulations and this is only you know pertinent to aam but these regulations are wildly different for non-art museums um where deaccessions take on a different role um now i come from an art background so i i couldn't really get into the nitty-gritty of that but i i do recognize that it's wildly different all right let's um get back to where most people here. would look at this and see a mess, he told Frost on one of their visits to his penthouse. And then he said, really, it's layered and complex. Their penthouses were so overwhelmed with stuff. He's talking about the, uh, elsewhere, the twin smaller hoarders that hotel, had uh, which were also overwhelmed vast amounts stuff. of stuff that but they apparently couldn't part with any of it. It would be too great. Kind of went down to their their psychology as to why they collected it in order to remember specific things, which is or exactly why. I'm you know sure what we're talking about right Islamic you know just like even though it might seem insignificant room, or have very little monetary value some of these things do point to a certain memory when which is why you have a playmobile from there, from toy from hurricane katrina right hoarding and away mm -hmm. from their apartments yeah i mean what were they like oh they were they were fun they were fascinating they knew something about everything they were both delightful delightful people if, if you talk to a layperson they would probably think of hoarding as a kind of mental illness mm -hmm. I'm imagining mm -hmm. it's not a mental illness it's not a it's not a deficit that affects it, all aspects of your functioning yeah the way I describe it sometimes is a form of giftedness there, there's a gift associated with this an appreciation for the physical world the an appreciation for the emotional so experience art world equivalent to this objects, uh this and, very much reminded me of herb and dorothy and that, vogel that and if you've ever seen their documentary and what curse. their apartment looked like and in new york and they were voracious collectors yes. of art on his postal service worker uh salary um which is exactly so that's what these twins kind of reminded me of right well you don't know what's gonna change so i used to work at the clark Institute, and I don't speak for the Clark, uh, but you know the Clark, like the Frick, or other places like that, you know, is the function of the taste of particular people. Um, and that has significance. It's interesting to you as an indication of who these people were. Um, it also has significance to taste, you know, come and go. I mean, Clark 
very savvy in buying impressionist paintings when they were plummeting out of avant-garde favor right because they were as sort of two generations ago art and and sort of boring right people have their opinions about the various impressionists and they still do um but it's possible that they in an alternate universe never came back into film you know and it was like the museum of thomas kincaid Right? right, but it wasn't. It turned out not to be. It turned out to be a very shrewd decision. We know that now. That was not obvious in 1928 or right? Particularly when he opened the museum, right? Not only was it out of favor when he bought the painting, a generation later, uh, you know, representational art at all was was really taken account of. So. Because the well, yeah, exactly. It's the Herb and Dorothy so, thing. I mean, they collect and, and the reason I raise the example is this is the sort of foundational story of the Clark that uh, Carl Weston and Lane Faison, who were the Williams directors, went down because Weston's Clark's lawyer. He didn't know anything about art. And so, my client, he has all these paintings in his apartment by some guy named Lee Neuer. When and Weston said, yeah, okay, right down. That was where it started, right? But, but if you visited their apartment, you would sound like Malcolm Gladwell. You'd say these hoarders, these old people, they've got all these patients stacked up all around their apartment, it's dusty and dirty. People must be crazy. You know, not so much. Because right. the investment paid off, and they're yeah. charming. <laughs> so um, we certainly view that very differently, but it was absolutely a hoarder mentality, but they were collecting pieces that they loved yeah. because of its monetary value, which is actually very similar to art museums. My guide to the hearing yep. of the FASB yeah. in 1991. Right. We're in the when final phases here of the podcast. Norwalk, Connecticut, and stood up before the Vatican of Accounting and said, we cannot tell you what we have in our collections. That is not the way our imaginations We won't are tell you. It's and the Vatican backs down. The accountants realize that this is a battle they cannot win, with the result that on virtually every American art museum balance sheet, there is some version of note a in but conformity with accounting that. policies generally followed by art museums the value of the museum's collections has been excluded from the statement of financial position when the so he also doesn't mention how dangerous it is to actually reveal the value of your individual artworks i certainly wouldn't want a gallery for someone to walk in and say i know that's 20 million dollars i know that's two hundred thousand dollars <laughs> Major security problem. And an expense problem, by the way. Right? <laughs> yeah. Because, okay, you could say this, you know, Titian is worth X, but all the stuff he's complaining about in storage, you're going to hire an appraiser to appraise each, you know, piece of furniture and decorative arts every year? Yeah, impossible. Unless that, that's going to be a cost driver that's going to that's gonna be a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think. And it couldn't even be done in a year. Like even, right. even and it would take yeah. forever. Even if you did it every five years, every ten years. And, yeah. and most of them. All right. Less than a minute left here. Revisionist history is produced by Mia Lobel and oh. Lee Mingistu with so, Jacob Smith, Eloise. My thoughts here, now that this is basically over, I mean our editor is I guess we didn't we didn't really need the whole thing in order to um Mastering by get to our our main feelings about it however i mean 
But uh, I mean, what does it what does it actually mean for the future? And 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 you know, given our current situation, you know, uh, we're using the pro the podcast to as the protagonist to raise the question uh, about deaccessions and um, you know, with things like AAMD's <clears throat> resolution. I mean, most people think that they're not going to go back to their old stance at least 100%. Maybe they'll they'll leave more um, doors open now. But uh, I don't know. What what are your thoughts uh, on on how we go from here? Uh, go ahead and start, Robin, if you don't mind. Well, I know we're, uh, my institution is a member of AAMD, and our our director um, has been quite involved. So I had heard you know, through the grapevine for a while that they were hoping to come up with some sort of statement that aligned, not wholly, but was more united with AAM's white paper. Now, the big difference being is that AAM is for all sorts of different collections, whereas AAMD is specifically for art museums. And uh, again, I think this kind of points to the public perception of how art museums are different than material culture or, or we'll use American history museums again as another example. Um, it is very much perceived as an ivory tower and um, is Gladwell uses as an example here, um, it's the Met that he's mentioning should be deaccessioning as opposed to the American History Museum or the Natural History Museum right down the road from the Met. So um, museum, art museums are, are so often pointed to as, as hoarders of these um, works that are worth millions of dollars. They are worth a lot of money, but their mission and reason for collecting is no different than a natural history museum or American history museum, which is always, you know, to fulfill a mission and to educate the public that wants to come and visit and research the collections. So um, it is always my hope that, that art museums can be a little bit more accepted in the world of deaccessions when they do proceed with a level of caution and awareness of their collection, their mission, their strategic plan, their collecting plan. Um, I think Newfields is a great example of how you can launch into not necessarily an inventory, but a critical review of your entire holdings that will help you look toward the future. I think museums as a whole and the pandemic has, has really brought this into very clear focus are at a real turning point where we have been as a whole, pushing large exhibitions that come from another continent that are incredibly expensive. They don't bring in the crowds, they don't bring in a lot of money. And while that is a way in which we've proceeded for hundred some odd years in some cases, it's not necessarily how the rest of the 21st century should unfold. And I'm hoping as we come out on the other side of this pandemic and AAM maybe comes out with a more um, permanent statement of some sort that relates to deaccessioning uh, is that our institutions, museums or other, art museums or otherwise, uh, will find new and creative ways of embracing what it means to be a museum. We're still going to collect, we're still going to deaccession, we're still going to have a board of trustees and missions and, and what is really the foundational aspects of what makes a museum. But uh, financially and um, programmatically and collecting wise, I think museums are at a really, it's an interesting time to be involved in a museum pandemic or not. Uh, we just find ourselves on a very even playing field all of a sudden after having been shut down for a long time or some museums that haven't even opened again. So um, I'm, I'm hoping that the, the rest of the 21st century brings a really new and creative way um, to look at how 
what it means to be a museum. Nick, any thoughts? Yeah, I think there's no question we're not going back to the way it was. I don't think it's possible. I, I think that's not, not the way the world works. And I think the challenge is going to be, again, I'm speaking as a lawyer, I think about norms and rules, but you know, the challenge is going to be how do we articulate guidance, if not regulation, that encourages the long-term survival of museums, right? There is always financial pressure. Museums are nonprofits. Most of them exist right on the, on the margin uh, each year. And that's a, that's a function of their scope. You know, I know people who, who are on the board of the ICA and they've told me, Nick, it's no different than, you know, Podunk Museum X. At the end of the year, you get your right, checkbook uh, and the trustees, you know, give till it hurts. But um, so, so that cannot, that can't always be the excuse. And I think the reason this, these rules have evolved is because um, there's always financial pressure and simply saying, well, we have this property that we could sell for a lot of money, which would solve our financial problem today. Giving into that is usually a bad idea because, um, because you'll have the same problem next year. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, as you say, Robin, it, the level playing field is, is a good thing to think about. And, and I think about this again, this isn't as a lawyer with any particular expertise, but to think about really what's within your means, what's your mission, right? There's absolutely nothing wrong with a museum that very few people go to that is financially stable, that uh, is a resource for its community, right? I mean, the most important institution in the history of my life is the local library, right? Where I went when I was five and six years old. And there were three other people there when I went, right? But that institution had a profound effect on me. Um, that institution still exists because they didn't try to do a $50 million blockbuster exhibition of the Gutenberg Bible, right? <laughs> um, and so I think the challenge will be, I think the, the current uh, guidance doesn't work. Uh, I think the, the, the reason that these crises keep popping up is because they don't work for everybody involved. And, you know, how do we come up with guidance that encourages people to be prudent and, uh, and long-sighted? Um, and, and I think uh, I, I'm grateful for this opportunity. I think conversations like this are how, are how we do better. Great. Well, um, I mean, it, I think it's also certainly showed that. So even though you know most of our museums have have closed, and even the ones that have opened up to a certain degree, um, you know, it, with limited capacity and everything, it certainly proves that you know nobody's wanting these institutions to go away. And to your point about the library, you know, um, you know, just because we can't open our museums right now doesn't mean they're not important. And so. Um, if anything, we recognize how important they are. And, uh, and even if nobody goes to it, it still remains important. So um, listen, I appreciate your time and having this discussion. Um, even if, you know, we, uh, you know, we couldn't get into every little nuanced detail, but uh, you know, it, it, I think it's important that we, that we address it. Um, and uh, because it's, again, you know, as you as you point out, it's not going to go away. It's going to continue to happen. The crises are going to continue to happen. So um, <clears throat> hopefully, you know, we can all get on board with uh, similar uh, policies about, you know, collections care uh, as we go forward. So thanks again so much uh, to, to Robin and Nick for, for your time and listening to this podcast with us and, uh, and commenting on it. 
And um, with that, um, everybody, you know, please subscribe to ARCS uh, on YouTube uh, so that you get notifications whenever we put up uh, new videos like this. And we're happy to put this out as a podcast as well. Thanks again. Go wash your hands.